0: hello hello there welcome from welcome to from skirts to scrubs i'm charlotte and i'm alicia And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general.
1: And we're back for the last episode of our season. Charlotte, how do you feel? How? Just like, tell me your feelings.
0: Oh, I'm I'm sad that we're taking a break. I know.
1: So to be clear, we are taking a break for a bit so that we can focus on med school and take some time to think about the podcast and how we can make it better. But don't worry. We are going to be back soon, very soon. And in the Mm -hmm. meantime, we have some really fun content that we're going to be releasing. So keep an eye out for that. But until then, we are going to be taking a break.
0: Yep. We'll be back. Probably sometime after the new year with a whole new season for you guys.
1: New year, new us. So for our last episode this season, we want to tie it back to the topic of episode one. And it's the topic that looms in everyone's conversations, but COVID-19, of course. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be interesting to parallel this pandemic that we're living in to another pandemic, which Charlotte... What do you think this pandemic is that I'm going to be comparing COVID to? A lot of people make this comparison.
0: It's probably the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu, the 1918 flu. Yes. It
1: 1918. Yes,
0: yes, yes. 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 Yes, yes, yes. The that 1918
1: one. Spanish flu pandemic. Hmm. Um, That is the one. And today we're going to be talking about the Spanish flu and actually how it had a profound impact on women of this time, of course, because this wouldn't be from Scurse to Scrubs if we weren't talking about people who identify as women.
0: Yeah, it's our own special twist
1: (laughs) on the Spanish flu. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. And then we're going to compare that to COVID and talk about some of the ways that COVID is affecting women and women in medicine, because there are some similarities, but also some really interesting differences. So to start, of course, for the last time for a while, Char, what do you know about the 1918 flu? Or do you have any ideas about it based on the time period that it was in or maybe where it
0: occurred? Just Tell me what you know. So I know that the Spanish flu was a pandemic, like COVID. (laughs) Well, it wasn't just an epidemic. Like, it was like a pandemic. It was a big deal.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: a lot of people died. It was like millions of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And it lasted two years Um, It was the flu, like the flu that we get the flu shots for type flu. And um, I know a lot of like little tiny things, like there was this one big parade in Philly or something where a bunch of people got (laughs) sick because they didn't cancel the parade. (laughs) And then, um, but I don't know anything about like women being involved in it, I guess.
1: All right, great. You know, so many things and we're just going to keep adding to that. And I hope I'll be able to surprise and enlighten you today. So let's get into it. So to start, I'm going to explain a tiny, tiny bit about influenza. And I really feel like I'm channeling my inner, like, Aaron Allman Updike, Aaron Welsh from this podcast will kill yes, you. our love, Love them. <laughs> I know. Shout out to you too, even though you'll probably never hear this, but we love you so much. Thank you for inspiring us. Yes. So the flu is a virus that mutates very rapidly and basically – Whenever cells from an animal, for example, like a pig or a bat, when they get infected from two different viral DNA strains, they become this new strain of the virus. And then if that animal comes in contact with humans, some of the strains can travel between animals and humans, and that's how we get it. So for example, the swine flu epidemic in 2009 was just a brand new type of flu that had the H1 and N1 subtypes but it was through pigs whereas like other Ooh. flu types can be like H3N2 it like there's just different subtypes yeah. and like different combinations but that's why we have so many different types of the flu and it's so quickly mutated because there's so many options Ooh. Mm-hmm.
0: That makes so much sense cuz I saw this thing that one of the ways that scientists predict the flu each year for like vaccine is by testing birds. That makes a lot of sense. And that's how they predict how to mm-hmm. make the vaccine. Yeah, so once a human has
1: the virus, you like know the drill, it can be spread by respiratory droplet contact. So like if you breathe in the respiratory droplets from someone that's infected or you touch something they've touched that has the virus in it, like an unsanitized surface or you like touch that and then you touch any of your mucous membranes so like your eyes nose or mouth you can get it you know how this works like this has been our lives we are well versed now oh i know so actually the 1918 flu pandemic was also caused by an h1n1 influenza strain but it wasn't a swine flu like a swine origin it was an avian origin so birds birds i know (laughs) um I know. and it spread worldwide <laughs> from 1918 to 1919 so Shar, based on the name where do you think the spanish flu started probably in spain good guess that was a trick question because like you would, I f- think, I would say but i feel like it's wrong yeah because why else would i ask <laughs> so actually we don't know where it started but it was first observed in europe the U.S. and parts of Asia before spreading across the globe. But to explain why it was called the Spanish flu and just to like better understand how it spread in general, it's important to understand the context of what was going on in the world at that time. So can you think of any like big world events that were occurring in the early 1900s? Like World War one yeah, exactly. so <laughs> yeah. that was exactly it. So World War I was going on and during that time Spain was actually neutral and they also had like free media like the press was like free to cover whatever they wanted and so the press mm-hmm. in Spain was covering the outbreak, of the flu from the very beginning when the first cases actually occurred in Madrid in late May of 1918, which is so funny because that's
0: where I was when COVID broke out too. Yeah. You're like, this is real personal already. It is. I was triggered. (laughs) But basically Spain
1: got hit pretty hard by the pandemic. And they were just reporting really honestly about the cases they were experiencing, whereas other countries were getting equally hit just as hard. But they were trying to keep the morale of their soldiers high, and so Mm. they were censoring a lot of the cases and just under reporting.
0: Oh, no, I know.
1: I know. And since the Spanish news sources were the only ones reporting about the flu, it was believed that Spain was the origin of the disease, but that's actually not true.
0: Oh, that makes sense. My other prediction was that sometimes in history, they would call like the enemy. That was their illness.
1: You know, like mm, if Spain yeah, was the actually,
0: en- enemy, it'd be like, it's the Spanish flu. Like it's not our flu, it's their flu because they're the bad no, ones. No,
1: that's a good point because actually in Spain, they called it the French flu. <laughs>
0: yeah. Maybe I learned that from um, this podcast
1: will kill you or something because maybe, crazy. Yeah, because that, that's so interesting. Yeah, I didn't even mention that in like my notes. But yeah, that, that is something that's true. That's so funny. Also, in the spring of 1918, the first cases of the flu popped up in a state in the U.S. Mm. Can you guess which one or do you remember which one? Um, It's like kind of a random state. No offense to people from this state.
0: Is it like Rhode Island? (laughs) No. (laughs) It it was Kansas. (laughs) Kansas. I thought it'd be like an East Coast coming from Europe. I know. I know. No,
1: it wasn't. It was Kansas.
0: So more than a hundred
1: soldiers at Camp Funston in Fort Riley, Kansas, became sick with the flu. And within a week, those numbers were five times as bad.
0: Oh my God. Not
1: surprising. Yeah. So the first wave of the pandemic was that spring of 1918, but it was actually a pretty mild Wave In comparison to the second wave, which came in the fall of that same year. Mm. In the spring, the symptoms people had were just typical chills, fever, fatigue, but they recovered in a few days and that was it. Mm-hmm. But in the fall, people died within hours or even what? like days of getting symptoms. Their hours. I know. Their skin turned blue and their lungs filled with liquid and they suffocated. And yeah. Apparently in 1918. To... I know. Apparently in 1918, the life expectancy of Americans was cut down by like
0: 12 years. Oh my God. I
1: know. I shouldn't be oh laughing, crap. but it's just
0: crazy. I know. Wow. I'm yeah. shook right now. I, I was shook, Imagine too. Imagine getting an illness and dying, like, hours later. That's not even enough time to schedule a doctor's appointment. Oh, <laughs> like schedule? What's scheduling? You Can we, can't even, like, you know? get
1: to a doctor. Like, it's not no. enough time. Mm-mm. Wow. Yeah, ridiculous. So we don't know exactly what caused the Spanish flu, but we do know that it was super, super contagious but we also don't know why it was
0: super contagious.
1: So we really don't know that much. Um, Something that is really interesting and that I want to focus on today is that it killed mostly healthy young people who are usually resistant to these kind of illnesses, Mm -hmm. especially the target, not target of this disease, but like a lot of people who died from it were actually world war one servicemen Hmm. Mm -hmm. and in the u.s more soldiers died from the disease than were killed in the war so based on your knowledge of immunology and disease why do you think the Spanish flu had a high number of young, healthy military men just dying left and right?
0: I don't know. They didn't have a good immune system, but your immune system's like the best, I thought, when you're like in a youngish age. It gets worse as you get older.
1: That is a good I know, I know. That's what was so confusing about this. So all these questions you're having are. They're valid. Okay, so there's a couple reasons, and I'm just going to explain it because it's kind of complex. But the war, just on a basic level, the war was like the perfect place for the spread of the flu. I mean, respiratory droplets were getting spread left and right, and these men just spent months together. In the trenches. Right. Right. Like, spent months together, close quarters, thousands of other troops, and the stress of war and malnutrition was just a daily part of their lives. So, a lot of men had Mm. weakened immune systems. So, that's what made them susceptible. But also, there's one more thing that's super interesting about the 1918 Mm -hmm. flu. Because, okay, so I guess the question is why do normal, healthy young people like us usually not get
0: sick? Because we have good immune systems and are generally healthy. Yes, (laughs) that's
1: exactly it. But if our immune systems are too strong, we can have an Mm overattack, sometimes called a cytokine storm. I have heard of that. And this is why some historians believe that the 1918 flu impacted otherwise healthy young people so intensely because of this cytokine storm that they were experiencing. So not only were young people dying more than expected, but actually more men were dying
0: than Hmm. women. And this is
1: partially because-
0: Separate from the soldiers or just like in the general population, men were dying? So like partially because a
1: lot of the men were soldiers and so they were dying, but also there was another kind of respiratory infection that was super common at this time that was more prevalent in men Hmm. than women. Do you have a guess of what infection it is?
0: This is Mm. hard. Respiratory? I guess I don't really know any respiratory infections, honestly. Is it like tuberculosis? It is! Is it really? (laughs) Yeah.
1: I'm proud of you. So, yeah, it was TB, and TB had a really high prevalence in 1918, especially among men. So, when the pandemic came around, these men were even more susceptible because they had a previous condition.
0: Oh, God. I
1: know. And so, without vaccines or any kind of approved treatment plan for this pandemic, for this flu, it basically had to be stopped by local mayors and healthcare professionals, which mm-hmm. they were trying to do, but also they were trying to keep morale high during the war, which is why they had that parade in Philly and then everyone yeah. got sick. Everyone handled these things differently. I, yeah. But ultimately, the only thing that ended the spread of this pandemic was that people who were infected either died or just happened to develop immunity and that was it.
0: So herd immunity.
1: Basically herd immunity. Yeah. Yeah. Or death. It's crazy because like the population of that time was significantly less than it is now. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was still possible. Whereas now I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. Okay. So we were talking about, the flu we're talking about the pandemic but what was the deal with women at this time i know i just went on about the history of the pandemic itself but a lot was happening for women so can you guess what might have led to like an improvement for women just think like we're in the time period like world war one is happening so like what are women doing
0: um, I have two guesses. One, okay. well, I have one guess that has two parts. Okay. That women were given more jobs is the guess. But the two parts is that they were given more jobs as nurses, and the other part is that they had more jobs in general because everyone was at war.
1: Great. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the job thing is correct. I'm actually not sure about the nurses, but um, yeah. So basically more women were brought into the workforce because so mm-hmm. many men were off at war or they were just dying. Um, mm-hmm. And so the number of women in the workforce was 25% higher than it had been.
0: That's a lot. Like before.
1: Yeah, it was a lot. And women were moving into – Employment that only men had before, like manufacturing jobs, for example. And as they entered these spaces, they began demanding for equal pay. And also, now that they had more economic power, they were pushing for the right to vote. Oh. So actually, the pandemic played a big role in the, first, the feminist movement, <laughs> um, i.e. suffrage, like women's suffrage. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and what's important is that the flu changed people's minds about women's role in these socio-political spaces and they saw women out at work and saw them being involved in community-making decisions and they were like, huh, you
0: know, women aren't too bad at this. <laughs> they were like, wow, these. They're real smart. Like, I know. We get them in here. They were like, oh, pants? Give them a pair of pants.
1: <laughs> so, in terms of women in healthcare, they were really doing just the most. They stepped up as primary caregivers, particularly nurses, like you mentioned, and they were taking charge of patients' care on the day to day level. Mm-hmm. And apparently, the male doctors were out here doing the least. This guy, Alfred Crosby, the author of a book called America's Forgotten Pandemic, the Influenza of 1918, had a quote where he said, all the physicians of 1918 were participants in the greatest failure in medical science in the 20th century, or if absolute numbers of dead are the measure of all time. That is like the insult of insults. I know. Alfred Crosby was not out here playing games. But there was this hospital in England that I like happened to find out about where two female physicians, Louisa Garrett Anderson and her life partner Flora Murray treated thousands of patients Ooh. at the Endell Street Military Hospital with the support of their staff, who were almost all women. Wow. And these women literally worked there for the entire duration of the pandemic until a lot of them actually died as well. But they are just one example of women stepping up to the plate and – Filling in these gaps that men at the time were just unable to fill.
0: Yeah, they were really like, heck, you can't do it. I'm going to do it better. And they just went for it. So
1: just to compare numbers to start, what I have um, as some stats are that the Spanish flu pandemic infected an estimated 500 million people. Oh my God. Which is about one third of the world's population, which was that population at the time. Oh, I oh my know. God. <laughs> and then the number of deaths was estimated to be 50-ish million deaths worldwide and 675,000 um, occurring in the U.S.
0: Holy crap. Yeah. That's So insane. like
1: 5% of the world's population was taken out by this flu.
0: Wow. It literally ran rampant around the world.
1: I know. Get your flu shots, kids. Currently, coronavirus has infected a confirmed 33 million people with, Hmm. at the time, I had written down 996,000 deaths, but I think we have hit a million. Sadly, yes. And actually, we probably know those numbers are higher because of underreporting. And since we're still very much mid-pandemic, it would be a true miracle if numbers just plateaued right now. So to get the most up-to-date information about COVID, this is not the place. But if you need to know anything, it's that you need to wear a mask. <laughs> and that's all you need to know from me.
0: And <laughs> in, in distance yourself from people who you yeah. don't know.
1: But in terms of women in COVID, that we can talk about. Shar, I wanted to ask you, because this is This seems different because it's like such a current event and we're talking about it in real time. You know, we've had our own experiences with COVID. It's less of me really telling you about things and more of us having a discussion. So what are some Mm -hmm. challenges that women have been experiencing because of COVID to your knowledge?
0: I know women have been having a hard time with like domestic violence, being Mm -hmm. stuck inside the home um I think with like healthcare too and like getting reproductive health care options mm-hmm. from not being able to go to places like Planned Parenthood or even just the doctor mm-hmm. in general was really hard to go to for a couple months.
1: Yeah and I'm I just kind of am going into more detail about them trying to be as broad and yet as narrow as possible but Um, I do want to start by saying that I know that women are facing a diverse range of challenges right now. Obviously, everyone's situation is unique, and the way that we handle our situations is always unique as well. I read a UN briefing, and there was a quote from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, where he said, quote, COVID could reverse the limited progress that has been made on gender equality and women's rights. Because I know. And because it's because the pandemic is making these inequalities that already exist even worse.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And based on the literature I was looking at, this seems to be less of a prediction and more of just a fact. The general Mm -hmm. trend worldwide is that women – earn less, save less, have lower job security, are the majority of single-parent households, and for those reasons and more, they are more susceptible to economic shock like the one Mm -hmm. that COVID has created. So for women in developing countries, for example, two-thirds of female employment is through jobs in the informal economy, and those, of course, are the jobs that disappeared first when COVID hit. And Mm -hmm. I also am going to be speaking a bit about domestic and intimate partner violence right now. So if you want to skip ahead a few clicks, now would be the time, like maybe like a minute forward would be good. But some 243 million women are thought to have experienced sexual or physical abuse at the hands of an intimate partner at some point over the last 12 months. Like. also specifically wanted to point out here some information that my amazing friend, and from Scurse to Scrubs fan, Mary, was telling me about. <laughs> but she did some really amazing research this summer um, on intimate partner violence, and she was telling me to keep in mind that we often think about intimate partner violence as within heterosexual couples. But actually, intimate partner violence within relationships between female identifying people is actually higher than in heteronormative couples. Really? Yes. And this is because all of the factors that support individuals that are experiencing domestic or intimate partner violence are Mm -hmm. more so catered towards heteronormative couples. And so they're less accessible for maybe people in a like lesbian or queer relationship, for example.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And yeah, so the all the factors were made for them. Exactly. And all of the factors that are making. COVID so difficult and that are affecting couples so much, like the isolation, excessive time at home, et cetera, are being exacerbated in these relationships that are not as supported in our society Mm -hmm. because we have a skewed and messed up idea of what love needs to look like. And there just aren't systems in place to set up support networks for queer identifying women who are in intimate partner violence situations. And so I wanted to specifically mention that because it's really important. And I really appreciate Mary for telling me that and their great research she's been doing.
0: Yeah. I would have never known that.
1: I know. I also didn't know that. Um, And having – that intersectional perspective is obviously something that we value. So due to school closures and lockdowns, girls are also facing higher risks of female genital mutilation and early marriage because school is a safe environment that vulnerable girls now no longer have access to. I know. And also women, like you were saying before, are struggling to access contraception and safe abortions And domestic duties, of course, seem to be falling disproportionately on women um there is a lot there is i'm just going to keep going mental health
0: oh deteriorating
1: for millions of people and i wanted to spotlight trans folks here because i was doing some reading and i saw that since the pandemic began crisis lines have been very active especially in trans communities and crisis calls to one specific line the trans lifeline have risen mm-hmm. 40% since the pandemic started oh and are continuing to rise
0: do you know why like specifically um,
1: oh i will say a lot of lgbtq individuals started calling the trans lifeline after june when trump removed protections removed federal protections for lgbtq healthcare my understanding is that the Trans Lifeline is a crisis telephone line staffed by mm-hmm. transgender people, and so it is one. It is a safe space for trans mm-hmm. folks to feel like they can call, but also they are feeling the need to call and reach out um, to crisis lines because they aren't able to find the community otherwise.
0: Right, uh, you're because you're stuck at it's home. So isolating, right? Yeah, like everyone's struggling with that, and I can't imagine. Like when you're going through huge life change and then you really have no one to support you.
1: Yeah. And a lot of uh, similarly um, individuals that are struggling with substance abuse are having similar issues Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of support groups um, meet in person and and now they're not able to. And like struggling with addiction is also something that's been um, really difficult for people. And the intersection of that and mental health and – identity and are all coming together and they're coming to a tipping point. hmm Yeah. I also want to clearly acknowledge, like, I'm just going to keep going with this. It's just just depressing. Keep going. I also want to clearly acknowledge the oppressively difficult time women of color are having in these COVID times. Women of color, especially undocumented or immigrant women, may be experiencing additional challenges in domestic violence situations as they have limited resources. They may be experiencing language barriers and a fear of deportation and that makes them feel like they can't leave their situation. When COVID first hit, it was East Asians and East Asian Americans that were taking the brunt of the rising xenophobia, racist threats, Uh, African American, Hispanic, and Native American communities that have already tend to have higher rates of pre-existing conditions because of and we'll be clear, it's because of the racism and oppression that they face daily in our social systems mm-hmm. that are causing these poor health outcomes for them. And right. um, also, these social systems are placing them at increased risk of food insecurity, housing instability, things like this. And of course, we can't ignore the impact of the continual pain, heartbreak, and just pure anger that is being experienced by Black communities after the murder of George Floyd, injustice done to Breonna Taylor, and countless mm-hmm. loss of Black lives. They're angry, we're angry, but we're not angry enough. And it's there's so many women across all intersections of identity that are struggling right now that I didn't get to mention. Yeah. But each of them has been experiencing their own struggles with COVID, and resilience gives us strength. And women are so resilient, but how long can we carry on, you know?
0: Right. You shouldn't have to be resilient just because you can.
1: But I am going to say that some congressional leaders are like trying to draw attention to racial and ethnic inequalities by Mm. pushing to ensure that a COVID-19 vaccine and drug treatment trials are going to include women, racial and ethnic minorities, and members of the LGBTQ community. So I wanted to throw that out there, but I don't know if I feel really amazing about their ability to make this happen. It is our system. And so we're working within the bounds of our system, but really quickly at the lastly, I just want to talk about women in healthcare, specifically women physicians um, and how COVID has been impacting them so I guess, do you have any ideas of how COVID's impacting women physicians? Char,
0: I was gonna say I was on this call, like, and they were talking about balancing life, specifically like as a mom and being a physician, and how it's like very difficult right now because they're basically tutoring, like, teaching their children, like, as they go to online school, and then they have to go to work and be a physician, and they have to come home and. I know, like be the mom and the teacher and the doctor and the provider for the family, like everything at once. So it's just like extremely stressful because all of their responsibilities that usually fall on their shoulders have like grown even more because so much is expected from staying. Yeah.
1: No, that's exactly what I was kind of getting at. There was an article that I actually read about it specifically talking about this, but it was in JAMA. So like very legitimate, which for those of you that don't know, uh, JAMA is the Journal of the American Medical Association. So it's very legitimate. And they actually had a article about this specifically. And so I do want to say, of course, that We know, and I always talk about how all women are diverse, and this includes physicians. Some are single, some are partnered, some are older, younger, they have parents, they're taking care of their parents, they are parents, we know the drill, women are Mm -hmm. all out here being all different. (laughs) And basically Mm -hmm. with COVID, like you were saying, the expectations on women's shoulders to give up or tone back on their careers is being exacerbated. Their expectations as moms and providers is being exacerbated and getting worse mm-hmm. and, and just falling on their shoulders so much heavier than it was. So it has made it so that women physicians have to sacrifice more than they already were sacrificing, and I wanted to spotlight Dr. Lorna Breen, who was an emergency physician in New York who committed suicide. Maybe you heard about her. Uh, she committed suicide she after experiencing intense work hours and just not being taken care of um, in terms of like her mental health, like no one was there to check in with her, see if she was doing okay. Uh, And during the peak of the pandemic in New York, she actually committed suicide. So just being a quote unquote healthcare hero isn't enough to carry physicians and healthcare professionals through this pandemic. Like that shouldn't be required of them. Just a nice pat on the back, like, thank you, we appreciate you. That is warranted. And that's the bare minimum though.
0: This one physician was telling us that When the pandemic began was the worst time of his entire life. But yeah, it's real. People need to be checked in on.
1: Um, But I wanted to end this portion of the episode with a quote from a professor from this like economic school in London. Her name is Claire Wenham. And she has been following and reporting on COVID. uh, And her Mm -hmm. quote, I just really thought was very poignant. Uh, She said, When you are thinking about a pandemic, you have to differentiate between what comes from being infected and what comes from being affected. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really important to consider and unpack. And so I thought we could do that
0: now. Sounds good to me.
1: Okay, so right off the bat, Charlotte, what are some immediate differences that you noticed between the 1918 flu and COVID in terms of impact on women?
0: Well, the obvious difference is that women were not such a big part of healthcare like they are now. Like There weren't female physicians, as many at least, then as now. So I think the the division of responsibilities of women was not so polar, I guess. In nineteen eighteen, I the chances of you like being a mom and being the caretaker of the home and working and taking care of sick patients were probably not happening compared to now. Right. Women are like a huge part of the healthcare field and are still being moms and still being the main caretakers of homes for some reason instead of it being an equal partnership. And so there's just like a lot more pressures on women now compared to in 1918. I know. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking
1: similarly. And then also what I was just noticing in my own research was how it seemed that the outcome almost of the 1918 pandemic was really positive for women. They, you know, made it out. They got out of the home. They started working. They gained political power, social power, and they were using that power to advocate for themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: maybe it's just because we're mid pandemic or something, but I just seeing so much negative and I don't know if it's going to be better for women after this. I have serious doubts. So those are two things and maybe hindsight's 2020. And so that's why I'm feeling so down about it, but I don't know who could have listened to me read off that whole list of ways that women are experiencing challenges and having to overcome them and could Mm -hmm. still feel this pandemic is a plus point for women Yeah, and everyone who identifies as women.
0: I think in 1918, like, the things about, like, getting women's um, voting and working outside the home, like, those were huge – things not to say that like any women's rights stuff going on right now isn't huge but that stuff was like the beginning you know like there was not a lot for women and then the war in combination with the pandemic and everything shook up the whole world so much it like gave women a chance to finally get a step ahead and start to make those changes which laid the ground for all the changes things that women have now and there's still so much more to gain but there are things that people have been fighting for for so long and has gained such little ground that I don't think a pandemic is gonna help this time.
1: I you agree. Know? To be honest, I'm actually feeling even
0: worse about it because.
1: Yeah, um, it's like it's
0: taking a step back to so like a lurch forward. In
1: terms of your own personal experience, though, Shar, when you're old and wrinkly, sitting with your. 28 grandchildren. (laughs) Um, What are you going to tell them about COVID? And what are you going to tell them about being a medical student during COVID?
0: Oh, man. I don't even know where I would start with COVID. I would be like, (laughs) 2020 was the craziest year of my entire life. Um, In terms of what I would say about, like, my role in COVID, I guess. So I think I've learned more this year than I ever have I guess and not just in like in a literal learning like a book learning way because I learned a lot in college and things like that but I feel like I've become so much well versed in politics and in social justice and in figuring out what actually interests me outside of just majoring in something in college and like finding a more niche place like starting a podcast about the history of women in medicine like so random in niche but all of this has happened because of COVID and because of the like break it gave from life which I think a lot of people have thought about and it's like kind of terrible that or what is terrible that it came from having to be a, a pandemic going on and a lot of people dying and being really sick but I feel like I've learned a lot during this time and then as a medical student it's weird to be a medical student in a pandemic the fact that we don't actually go to class and things like that but my med school has, has talked about it a lot and that this is such a unique experience for us but it's gonna make us such different doctors and generations before us because next time a huge thing goes down it might not be a pandemic but it could be something just terrible along those lines where physicians are put at the front again to make decisions like we will have experience in that coming from like what we learned in medical school it's not going to be like something we learned later on it's going to be part of how we build ourselves as physicians is literally rooted in a pandemic and that's going to affect like the whole next generation of physicians and could like affect he- healthcare care a lot which I think is really interesting and I can already kind of see it now because we've talked about how it's hard to join clubs in med school. Like we were so excited about the different things we could volunteer. (laughs) Like we were so excited about where we could volunteer and like what things we could do, but it's hard because you can't do anything because you can't volunteer like in person in a lot of places. But it's interesting to see how med students are being like really creative with it and being like, okay, we can't actually go anywhere, but what can we do instead? And a lot of it has to do with public health initiatives, initiatives where you like learn a lot about patient populations instead of just focusing on the science, which happens a lot. I think med schools are like taking a step back and focusing more on the social determinants of health now since that's such a huge part of the pandemic. Why? Like black populations have been affected at such a higher rate than other populations. Like those are things that need to be talked about and why? I think this is this is a unique experience for us as medical students, basically. Yeah, it's crazy. A lot. lot. These are my grandchildren. That it was a crazy year. I learned. Oh my god! I'm gonna
1: sit down with my grandchildren. They're gonna think I'm insane from day one. (laughs) Every month, it's like like an advent calendar, but every month (laughs)
0: is like a different. Instead of those Trauma. cheap little chocolates, it's been something world ending. Yeah. Like,
1: but okay, <laughs> all right, uh, yeah, 2020, crazy year. Um, yeah. Total what total would total I tell end. my grandkids? I, I think I would try to focus on like all the f- cool positive things that came out of 2020, and like, yeah, like a lot of like the John Chris I'll tell them about how I tried to take a coding class, and then I was like, "No, <laughs> literally, I coding is about not."
0: That. Oh my god, I know, right?
1: Yeah, I think in terms of being a medical student during COVID, though, I agree it is really, really weird. Um, and I think the biggest thing that I've been trying to do is like find a sense of community and my class has done a really great job of that, or at least we're trying. I think that's just what's been a major struggle for a lot of people, not only in medicine, but outside. Just everyone is feeling isolated, alone, and so finding a sense of community is so key. But my last question is, how do you think COVID has reinforced or maybe changed how you viewed women physicians or the practice of medicine in general? Just any thoughts you have about how COVID has impacted health care in your mind?
0: Um, well, I mean, like personally, I feel like COVID really strengthened my decision to go into medicine, I guess. I guess when like COVID began, I mean, everyone felt really helpless, felt so helpless. And I hated that I couldn't do anything. It was like frustrating to not be able to do anything when COVID began. And it really like pushed me even more to want to be a physician. I mean, I was already in med school at that point. The decision was made. But it has strengthened that. And I think after talking about like what women are going through now, it just shows that women are such a like essential part of healthcare and the fact that they're juggling so many jobs at the same time, but are still going into work and being doctors and working hard. It's just kind of like inspiring to get there because as female medical students, we're always pressed with questions of like, how are you going to balance your life? How are you going to do this and all this stuff? And it's really annoying. And But those are actually questions that, like, we think about. And seeing how women are handling this, coming together and talking about how they're handling all the things that are put in their shoulders kind of inspires me to, to like, figure it out for myself, too, I guess, down the line. Um, and then in terms of how healthcare is changing, I think healthcare is becoming, like, a lot more aware of a lot of the, like, racial Parts of healthcare, which isn't a direct effect of COVID. It's a direct effect of like what's been going on in 2020. But I know that our step exam, I'm pretty sure. So like the first exam that we'll take for boards includes people of color, skin differences, I think. In Thank God.
1: Literally, I don't know why it's taken so
0: long. Yeah, well, I, I think do it's know being why, added but... to our exam, which is crazy that it wasn't already on the exam as a big thing. But apparently, I think it's going to be our year. And that's just like a great step forward. Like it's a huge push to actually, it's a small push, but it's like more than has been done in the past. From And it knowledge.
1: has a major impact.
0: Yeah, like because, for example, Lyme's disease, you're taught that it looks like a bullseye on your skin and that's how you know you got bit by a tick with Lyme disease. It is. It looks like that if you're white. Like if you look like me and you're pale as snow. But like if you have darker skin <laughs> tones, there's like, you're not going to see that eye circle and people like literally miss that diagnosis because of it. And Lyme disease can get really terrible if you don't have like a proactive treatment right after getting it. So just those types of things I think are going to make a huge difference in healthcare like later on. Um, So changes that are being made just from everyone's experiences in 2020 of like, wow, we need to change stuff about healthcare based in race, based in how we handle like public health issues, how we handle like um, health education and communities and things like that. So I'm like kind of hopeful for what's going to happen with healthcare, even though not everything else is hopeful in the world. Um, I think there could be some positive things that come out of this for down, down the line when we are practicing.
1: I'm holding on to that as well because I really don't know uh, how it's going to pan out, but yeah. But I think I do – echo like what you were saying about reinforcing your decision to go into medicine i think one after that terrible coding class and two <laughs>
0: You're
1: after like, I'm not going
0: into coding <laughs> sorry Thank dad <laughs> god
1: it no he didn't want me to either it was it worked out but um <laughs> i just it reinforced to me what an honor it is to be in this profession and i hadn't even mm. entered it yet really? because it's truly a Special place to be, and there's so much trust that goes into that, and um, just being able to work on a team with other healthcare professionals and work at this peak of like ability is is so difficult, and yet, you know, there's so many people who've done it before us, and we will join them, and then we'll go on and make better physicians. I hope, and
0: I think this pandemic has really shown like how selfless. Healthcare profession is so all the doctors going in mid-pandemic to take care of patients dying of a disease that they could literally get from caring for them is selfless enough, but they go home and they can't see their families. Like I know my parents lived in separate bedrooms for multiple months when the pandemic began because my dad's a physician, and I know tons of like people whose parents are the same thing who have like parents who are physicians. Like physicians are going out risking their life to care for other people they don't even know, so they can go home and not even be able to see their loved ones it just really shows how like selfless this profession is.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. My mom was doing that too. Like I don't Mm. even know if my mom and dad like sleep in the same room anymore. Like even now, um,
0: just cause pandemic's still going on. Yeah. It's
1: still going on. Um, and it also, the other thing this pandemic has reminded me of is the importance of learning about history. Um, Because something I forgot to mention before that I was thinking about is I mentioned the cytokine storm as being like Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why a lot of young people were dying from the Spanish flu pandemic. But actually, that is another reason why young people in this now – I don't even know if you can call it a wave, but in this moment of COVID – more young people are, are passing away or like getting it and having really terrible lifelong inflammatory diseases. And it's because mm-hmm. of that cytokine storm and just oh, knowing history yeah. and actually doing something with it are two different things. And so it yeah. makes me even more thankful for this podcast and having the space to learn and disseminate knowledge or at least work through our discovery processes together it's been really special to have this space with you
0: it has i'm gonna i'm gonna miss it
1: i know for a while we'll keep having these conversations it's just not gonna be i recorded. mean we're gonna
0: have them we're not gonna have everyone else with us though i know we'll at miss least until we come back with a whole new season of fun topics all topics are fun, but they're interesting topics. Oh.
1: Yeah. And if you have any suggestions, obviously let Here's us up. know. We are always looking for suggestions and we love connecting with you.
0: So, in the meantime, before that next season is released, when Alicia and I are spending that time recuperating and promoting the podcast and just coming up with all the fun ideas for this place and, you know, napping, stuff like that. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all podcasting apps or whatever podcasting app you like because, you know, maybe here and there we might release like a little bonus episode or a little like fun little tiny mini episode. You don't want to miss out because you're not subscribed, so definitely subscribe. Also, while you're over there on the app, like pushing those buttons, you might as well leave a rating and review specifically on Apple Podcasts, if you can, which is the best place. Or if you aren't really into ratings and reviews or something, please promote us to wherever you would like or just tell a couple of friends about us. And we love to widen our reach and put more people in our community. Yes, we love building community. Good. And one
1: of the ways that we do that is through our social media. So you should follow us on Instagram. We have a Facebook. We're super active on them. Uh, We love engaging with you guys on those platforms. And then you can also check out our website for more information about the podcast, for our show notes and sources. They're always up there. And that's from skirtstoscrubs.com.
0: All right. Well, and lastly, Here is to all the women who have fought for us to be to where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. We love you. Thank you. Thank you for supporting us in this endeavor. And we will be back and see you guys in 2021. See you so soon.